Welcome to The Learning Curve. This is Gerard Robinson from Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, this time I'm looking out the window and it's rain. Usually it's been sunny for the last few weeks. Yes. But, uh, I knew that was coming from I mean, my I'm co-best. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yes, I knew that was coming. But the reality is we're, we're just glad to have another week together. How are you? I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Um, catching up on Almost Done with Homeland. Finished a great um, a great series. I don't know what it's on, uh, but it's called Unorthodox, which is really great, too. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, watching more TV than I normally would. But um, but that's OK. Happy and waiting for spring to spring. And uh, hopefully, you know, we're, we're we're in it, but we're we're moving towards a day, Gerard, when when we will be able to see friends again. I did um, have some good friends. It was my birthday yesterday. I had some good friends come and visit and wave from six feet away or more like 10 feet away with masks on. And, and we had to cheers. So that was nice. Well, well, belated happy 28th birthday. Thank you. No, we'll go with 30. I'm comfortable with 30. Okay. Okay. No, 30 is good. Sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> for, you, for, you know, half of 30 years, but anyway, Yes. <laughs> Here we go. Um, so I, I think if you don't mind, Gerard, I'll start with um, a story of the week that is both pleasing and angering me at the same time. And I've actually been writing about this a little bit. Um, some of our listeners might might have seen. So, OK, everybody's going crazy over CARES money and especially this very flexible governor's fund, the governor's emergency educational relief fund that the federal government has given. Right. So government governors have really a pretty great deal of flexibility um, to to decide how they're going to spend this money. It's going to be pretty interesting to watch. And I'm sure it must be really um, frustrating to be a governor right now because everybody's trying to get on your radar and tell you how to spend this money. But so in, in Oklahoma, Governor Kevin Stitt announced that he was considering using part of his governor's fund um, to support students in private schools. And he's going to do this by contributing to the state's tax credit scholarship program, right? So this is a tax credit scholarship program that serves children um, who live below, at or below 300% of free and reduced price lunch guidelines and or children who um, are in schools that have been designated as underperforming. So pretty good, right? You get to take scholarship money and go to a school of your choice that hopefully is better performing. And we have evidence to believe that's true. So of course, though, there are special interest groups in the state that think this is a really terrible idea, namely the state's um, super state school superintendent, along with the state's teachers union. So not surprising that they wouldn't want this money sent to private schools, that these groups wouldn't want this money spent to private schools. But I think that this is just, for me, Gerard, this is really a moment for us to think about the role that private schools play in American education. And yes, not for all children, but boy, for a whole lot of them. And let's be really clear, you know, um, Excel and Ed and EdChoice and others, we've been talking about this for a while. If if all of the private school students, or even if a portion of them, even if 10, 15% of school students that are currently enrolled in private schools, and let's remember, these are students whose parents pay taxes, and the local public schools benefit from those taxes, but then they 
um, don't act, the local public schools don't have to educate these children because they're, uh, they're choosing another school, right? Where tuition is being paid. Um, if some portion of those kids have to go back to the local district, either because their school closes because not enough people could pay tuition or because their parents couldn't afford to pay tuition, the, the districts are not going to be able to, in many cases, absorb that impact. It's going to be millions of dollars to the state. It could be millions of dollars to local districts combined, right? And on top of that, there are these facilities issues, like some districts are going to be overwhelmed. Where where are we going to put these additional children that we have not thought we were going to have, right? So this is it's this pandemic is throwing us all into a tailspin and some governors are actually doing what they're supposed to do and get creative with thinking about how to use these funds. But it's, but we're always taken back to the same old fights over, you know, adults in, in, in not serving kids in the right way. So this story from the Oklahoma and Gerard, it really, as you can tell, it got me a little bit worked up. Um, but I would like to say it's, it's nice to see a governor sort of getting out there and saying, actually, I want to make this about helping children. I want to make this about helping families. And this is what this money is meant to do. I'm equally worked up as well, uh, in part because I remember when I was president of Bayo, um, you know, many years ago, I had a chance to go to uh, Oklahoma and talk about the importance of both public and private school choice and glad to see the program enacted in 2011 and launched in 2013. You would make it, you would think that the program was just a billion dollar program and somehow students were just taking millions of dollars when in fact, at least in 2017, 18, the average value of the scholarship was $2,017. And the usual cast of characters come out against this because supposedly it's going to destroy education, public education. But you bring up a very good point. The school system will have to absorb students who were not on the average daily uh, attendance count. Uh, the year before. And so there's an economic hit. But we're also we also have to be honest about the hypocrisy of this, because those same uh, private schools have access to Title One and Title Two funds under, uh, I guess now, initially it was um, uh, the 1965 Elementary and Secondary Education Act. Right now, uh, Every Student Succeeds Act. Private schools in Oklahoma have received taxpayer dollars for decades. And so to think this is something different, I think, is uh, is unfortunate. But, you know, as we know, education is an exercise in power for adults to play with other people's children. And this is just another example. All right. So my story uh, equally got me worked up as well. And this is from Kate Grotzinger, National uh, for NPR. And it's from April 22nd. And the title is. Navajo families without internet struggle to homeschool during COVID panic. And this story is, is pretty tough. It's about uh, a school uh, system or a county in Utah. And although a number of the families uh, are now, of course, out of school, a number of the families simply aren't able to get access to their homework. And here's why. Most families travel uh, the internet However, only 40% of the homes in the Navajo Nation are online, according to the Navajo Tribal Utility Authority. And what that means is that although the utility network covers two-thirds of the reservation, which is roughly the size of West Virginia, less than half the population is online because of the poverty rate. And by that, most families earn about 
10700 a year. And when you're looking at internet charges from $30 a month to $80 a month, and you've got to make some pretty tough decisions, some families are just foregoing having internet. And as a result, a lot of uh, Navajo children are not uh, getting their homework assignments or participating in school, or if they are, it's just not the same way as others. So it's another example of COVID-19, not telling uh, us, because we've been doing this work for years, but most of the country, that there is a link between poverty, zip codes, or counties. And this is just uh, another example. So I'm sure there's some entrepreneurs in the state and around the country who are listening to this uh, who will find a way to step in. But uh, it's just troubling to live in uh, the most wealthy nation uh, uh, in the world. In a state like Utah, there's also a lot of wealth. We're still dealing with almost a tale of uh, two nations. Yeah, it's it's incredible, George. Do you think that that what part of this is revealing to us is that we're going to have to start understanding internet access and you know just broadband hardware, everything that comes with that, as something that is fundamentally wrapped up in the the duty that states have to to educate all children. Is this going to be part of what we now think of as part of the right to education? I think it will in part because some forward thinking governors will see this as a jobs program walking the lane of education, meaning in a place like Virginia, I've talked to several people in the city who said, yeah, as long as I'm in Charlottesville proper, I have access to the Internet. But when I drive home, I'm actually two, three miles away um, from any connectivity in terms of a physical sense. And so governors may say either A, with the funds they have available uh, to partner with businesses and others and to put in the, the physical infrastructure needed to reach more people. And you can call it a jobs program or you can call it a jobs outreach. So uh, I think that's important. At the same time, we're going to have to have uh, some difficult conversations about uh, the role of Internet providers and in pricing. You know, I'm a free market guy, and so I do believe that we shouldn't handcuff uh, entrepreneurs, business owners, and uh, the uh, cable community from uh, making money in this area. But there's probably a way of uh, doing good and doing well at the same time. But, yeah, you're on to something. It's got to be a part of uh, the education conversation. Yeah. And we, we, there's, there's got to be there's got to be a balance between market and, you know, provision of this. It, it's becoming an essential good for people. And when you think about the fact that these are our native uh, American families or in particular Navajo families, uh, and we've made uh, the native people promises for over 100 years. Uh, and have broken a lot of those. And even when we try to provide them with some may call school choice or school options, uh, put them into boarding schools. And we know that it had a number of mixed results. In 2020, for the Navajo Nation uh, and similarly uh, associated uh, Native families to still be in this position, just again, says a lot about promises broken. And we just got to do a better job of keeping our original promises. Yeah, absolutely. Yet another side of the equity issue that we um, can can talk about on this podcast forever. And I think that our next guest is going to have a lot to say about this too. Um, your friend, my friend, the great Ashley Burner is going to be with us in just a minute. Um, you know her as the deputy director of the Institute for Education Policy at Johns Hopkins and, and many, many other things. So excited to talk to Ashley in just a second.
So we're really pleased to be back with Dr. Ashley Berner. You all know her. She is the deputy director of the Johns Hopkins Institute for International Education Policy and an associate professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Education. She served previously as the deputy director, deputy director, excuse me, of the Cooney Institute for Education Policy and the director of the education program at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at UVA. Dr. Berner has published so many articles and book chapters on the relationship between educational structure and state funding in democratic nations, religious education and citizenship formation, and teacher preparation in different national contexts. I mean, you guys have all probably read her book, Pluralism in American Public Education, No One Way to School. It's amazing. But I have to say, the best thing about Ashley is that I I consider her a dear friend, and I think Gerard does too. And I remember Ashley, the first time I met you, realizing that there was another woman who wanted nothing more than to study education systems elsewhere and compare them to the U.S. It was just a shining moment, my friend. So (laughs) welcome to the learning curve and so happy to have you here. It is such a pleasure to be with you all. You all are experts and leaders in the field, and I'm just honored to be, I would say, on 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 the stand with you all, but I guess we're all um, hibernating right now and talking via Skype. We're, yeah, not necessarily. Uh, who knows if we're standing? I mean, we don't need to be doing whatever we want right now. <laughs> but I digress. We're supposed to talk about, you know, important intellectual things here on the learning curve, Ashley. So we can't, you know, we've got a lot of questions for you and your work just spans so many, so many different. I mean, it's like I, every time I get a new report, I'm like, and she does that too. It's amazing. But let's talk, let's talk about something that the three of us um, who are, are speaking right now, of course, care very deeply about pluralism in American public education. So in your book, as that many of us have read, um, and, and, and cheers to you for making this topic readable and digestible to folks, which is a huge win. Um, you know, you look at all these different school models as a means to advancing not only excellent excellence, but also equity. And um, we know that our system here in the U.S. tends to be pretty uniform. And so I have two questions for you, and I can, I can re-ask the second if we need to. But talk to us a little bit about the promising models you see for a more pluralistic vision. And I'd also really love to get your feel on what this current COVID-19 moment is showing us about the uniform American system. Mm. Well, First of all, thank you for, again, the opportunity to talk about things we, we love, namely how to expand opportunities for all kids. And the really interesting thing that I, I started to notice when I studied abroad and, and started looking at systems around the world is just how different their assumptions were. Um, so our assumptions in this country for 100 years have been that Really, we need a uniform school system that only the district school can deliver democratic education. And most countries don't see it that way at all. They fund all different kinds of schools um, on equal footing, Um, from Catholic to Montessori to Islamic. The Netherlands funds 36 different kinds of schools. Um, and, And I think the premise there is very equity oriented. It is that every family should be able to find a school or found a school 
that really suits their children's needs, that families are very different. It's not just about the amount of funding that a school gets. It could be the school's um, ethos and purpose. It could be their focus, their pedagogical styles. And so a pluralistic system assumes that children are different, families are different, and that it is incumbent on the public to make it possible for all families, not just wealthy families, to make choices that that are good for their family and their children. But at the same time, the other means of advancing equity and excellence is to hold all of the schools to a very high standard academically. And of course, these things don't always work as they're intended and the, the devil is in the policy details, but when they are designed well, these school systems do advance equity and equal access and close the achievement gaps. I'm happy to give many more examples of that, but that's in essence what we find when we look at most democratic school systems. So you're talking about systems that put power in the hands of family and 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 that you know allow families to make choices that fit what they're what they're kids need and and that this actually forces equity. And in here we are in the current moment where I think families um, are getting a real firsthand look <laughs> into into what this you know, what education is supposed to be or what their schools, the schools that their children attend think education is supposed to be. And and some of us are having a real wake up call. Mm-hmm. And we've even seen these moments, right, where, well, if we can't teach everybody, then in the name of equity, we will teach nobody. Um, There's one thing that COVID-19 yes. that this pandemic yes. is revealing. What, what do you what do you think this is showing us about equity in our system? Well, you know, I, I guess I'd have a, a kind of nuanced response to that. On the one hand, what, you know, I think this is showing us, this this move to remote learning is that in general, we as our school systems have been under challenging our kids. I mean, you know, the, the OECD's PISA reports are pretty clear that even our most um, wealthy kids in general are underperforming their matched peers. Um, we've got TNTP's report about, you know, the, the opportunity myth that categorically teachers under challenge students, especially low income students. I think families are getting maybe a closer look at what that's been looking like. However, I think, um, you know, all of our schools, most of our schools have been just not thinking about pandemics. We've had quite a bit of evidence from international leaders and from other countries that have gone through, say, the SARS epidemic, um, that you need to practice remote learning so that everyone's ready for it. And it has indeed shown the massive socioeconomic inequities that, you know, for example, access to broadband, access to devices. And this is not just a problem for schools to solve. It's a problem for all of us to solve. So I would say I would say there are some there are some problems that would apply to any school system, whether it's pluralistic or uniform. You just you need to be able to provide devices for kids and you should practice. A lot of Asian countries practice, you know, several weeks a year learning remotely so that they're ready for the next go round. 
Yeah, I believe that, um, it, too, it's really interesting that you say there, there are other countries that we could be looking to, yet we have not. Well, <laughs> we haven't, we we haven't done that, right? We, we don't. don't. I mean, part of it is, part of it is, you're absolutely right. I mean, and nor do we even look at model states. So Massachusetts did the most extensive academic uh, overhaul yeah. in the 1990s and and so forth, where the teachers were required to be certified with really rigorous subject matter content, and the MCAS, a very very hefty end of year exam that you know it's not as rigorous as the exit exams that most democracies require, but it was still really sent Massachusetts to the top of the charts, but other states didn't really copy them. Yeah, uh, you know, it, there's a little bit of hope with you know with Louisiana's successes in the curriculum reforms they've done that other states are trying to incentivize high quality materials too, but in general, our educational systems are quite parochial in their yeah. focus. And and to say that some some of us should now I think really be looking to um, where friend Gerard used to be and that is Florida who as you point to some Asian countries preparing for remote learning by practicing it also happening in Florida, but Ashley I want to I want to turn onto something that you've mentioned and another facet of your work and that is thinking about curriculum. Um, so I know we're both big fans of Edie Hirsch's work, right? <laughs> <laughs> and. And it was it was as long ago as 1987 when he when he published cultural literacy, right? And of course, Hirsch talked about how kids need to need wider access to background knowledge in K to 12 education if we want to see equity and mobility. I'm wondering, you have you've done extensive work on looking at curricula across states and localities. Where have you, if anywhere, seen Hirsch's work work? Where have you seen oh, it? Oh, great question. Well, so so I think, yes, you're absolutely right, Kara, to point out the equity impact of background knowledge. Because, you know, as it turns out, wealthier families and middle, you know, upper middle class families are able to take their children to different countries or different states to have conversations and museum visits that are about current events and um, different you know, maps of the world and so forth. But but families that are not as well resourced do not have access to as much information and it is much background knowledge. So it is even more incumbent that schools provide that rich content as a matter of principle. And, you know, this is the other, I think, area that I find that a lot of pathos is that most democracies it really democratized the liberal arts curriculum when they expanded funding for schools. And our country moved away from a liberal arts curriculum and rich academic content and towards a very thin skills focus. And we did this a hundred years ago. So, you know, we, we have a bias in this country against really learning and specifying domains of knowledge. And that's what Hirsch really highlighted. You can't just have skills. You need knowledge, the background knowledge. And Dan Willingham at UVA and, you know, has reinforced this through his work, his studies. Natalie Wexler just wrote a great book about this, Why Knowledge Matters. 
you know, it's international studies show the same thing. This is a really important element of excellence and equity. And in fact, in this country, the Catholic high schools, famous Catholic school effect was due in part because of its high quality curriculum that tended to be delivered. And I, I could go on and on about models of this, but who's really doing it? So the, the, the districts and uh, states that come to my mind first, um, of course, Louisiana, where they have incentivized the use of really robust curricula. And they're now creating curriculum-based assessments that are based on their English language arts um, curriculum called guidebooks that most of the teachers use. And that is the perfect virtuous circle where you're reinforcing the learning through an assessment of specific content. Um, Duval County, Florida, uh, their superintendent, Vidi, brought core knowledge, which is Hirsch's uh, own curriculum, into all of their district schools. And their test scores skyrocketed. And now I think six Florida districts are copying what they did. Um, their uh, superintendent Vitti is now in Detroit where he's doing the same thing. He's having a big curriculum bid. Um, we've also worked with uh, Baltimore City Public Schools and this is a, a school district that has had an amazing amount of courage. They, uh, this, there are elementary schools where very few children are proficient and Dr. Santalisi's has put wit and wisdom into all of their district schools. And that's another knowledge rich curriculum. And they have provided what is really important professional development on the curriculum, uh, 10 days of it a year. So there are examples, and in fact, I could cite many more. Cheese for Change and the CCSSO are both making a big push for high-quality curriculum across their membership, and there's really exciting stuff going on. Ashley, it's so good to hear your voice. Thanks for joining us. Good to hear yours. I'm glad to hear you mention Louisiana. Uh, most people know that I'm from Los Angeles, but I was actually born in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And often when the word Louisiana comes up, it's often for something very negative. Yep. And so it's good to hear uh, Louisiana, particularly the work that uh, John White's team uh, and others are doing in that state. So you've given us some good examples of what's taking place in a few areas. One that comes to mind is the recent report you and your team at Johns Hopkins worked on regarding the work in Providence Public Schools. And that report received some great national attention. And of course, around the same time, Massachusetts released a really critical uh, audit about Boston Public Schools. What were the main findings of the Providence Review? And what reforms do you think could be effective in America's largest troubled urban schools? Well. Um, first of all, thank you for that. Um, it was a real a privilege to work with Providence and the state of Rhode Island on that report. I think, um, and our team spent a, a significant amount of time on the ground talking to teachers and students and administrators, and some of the high-level findings which are in our report are that, that there was a really lo fairly low level of academic instruction across the board that uh, back to this notion of a high quality curriculum it just wasn't aligned within the schools and across the district and in many of the schools the teachers just 
the, the students had kind of given up. I mean, there. Let me just qualify this. There were some wonderful schools that we visited, and mm-hmm. and and I would say mo- that the people we spoke to, the adults, were very committed to the system. They were very committed to the students, to their special needs kids, to their ELL kids. But it was it was very hard for them to exercise their good judgment with academics and safety concerns and so forth. So, you know, we had this low level of academic instruction. We had this sense that the teachers did not feel supported. They had a, felt a lack of agency, a lack of input into their decision. Principals were not set up for success. They had a, a very difficult time um, exercising judgment around the labor contracts. That was a particular problem. And um, the, the, the system had so many multiple layers of authority that it was, it was quite difficult to actually get anything done. The procurement mechanisms were the most restrictive that I, I could, I, I've certainly ever seen. So it was, it was, um, it was, it was uh, dispiriting to be there and see it and, and, and also encouraging to see how many devoted teachers and principals were in the system, uh, rolling up their sleeves day in and day out. Now, the state has taken some moves. Uh, they've, they've um, you know, appointed a new superintendent and they're, they're doing everything that they can do. Um, as far as your larger question, Gerard, about what can we do with 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 districts, I think, you know, there's not there's not a silver bullet there. Different. Sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, when we look at the research, we do see that that sometimes charterizing a, a, a district uh, helps. That sometimes the receivership, for example, the one in Lawrence was was helpful, but it, it's it's uh, it's complex, and I think for that reason. I would just come back to emphasizing this combination of nimbleness, flexibility, and choice, and also high accountability. So Miami-Dade, I think Kara mentioned Florida, Miami-Dade, their research, the research shows their results are getting better and better and better. They've got um, high population of English language learners, but they're closing the gaps. They've got a lot of different kinds of schools that are supported by the state, and and they also have accountability measures that make sure their charter schools, for example, are strong, which is not the case in other Florida districts, by the way. Um, another school system that's that's placed a really big bet on rigorous instruction is Chicago. Their, their use of the International Baccalaureate has been profound. Um, the, the, in 1997, they put the International Baccalaureate Diploma Program in some of their lowest performing high schools, and the kids who went through four years of IB had a 40% greater chance of going to college and persisting in college. And so when Rahm Emanuel was mayor, he made the extension of IB a signature of his tenure. And it's it's had a remarkable effect. And you can see it in the test scores. Great work. And what's so important is to have scholars like yourself and your team taking what you know in terms of best practices, being a critical friend, but also saying that this can change. People can make a difference. 
you know, when I read the Providence story, I also think about uh, cities like Jersey City, uh, one of the first urban school systems taken over in the country back in the late 1980s and just moving forward. So glad to have you uh, on the front line with this conversation. So here's a follow-up question, but it's, it's a different take. You have pretty deep roots in understanding America's founding documents and what it means to founders like Jefferson or Adams or even Horace Mann. And they believe that history and civic knowledge was a wellspring for public democratic education and citizenship. When we look at those themes, what should policymakers and teachers think about when they're looking at using history in our schools to enhance our knowledge about what it means to be a citizen uh, in the general sense in, uh, in our schools in our country today? Mm, you are absolutely right, Gerard, that our founding fathers, almost all of them, wrote extensively about the liberal arts curriculum and why it's so critical for democratic citizenship. Our NAEP scores just came out today uh, for history, geography, and civics, and they were abysmal. So I, I think this is a huge issue. And the two things that I think policymakers can do, the first thing that the first is to incentivize the use of really high quality knowledge building materials and social studies. It's really important that students not just have one year of how does American government work, but that they understand where other countries are how other countries differ from us, why it matters. You know, this is this is the stuff of, of history, geography, economics, and it needs to happen every year of K to 12. So really incentivizing the use of high quality materials and social studies. And, and I think, you know, some states are like Florida is now got a four stakes test for civics. Well, that's one step in the right direction, but it's not enough. So the, the curriculum's one. The second is even probably more rare in this country, which is preparing teachers to lead rich debates in classrooms. Mm -hmm. the, the scholar David Campbell at Notre Dame has shown that the presence of what is called an open classroom climate where teachers bring diverse viewpoints on a single issue and where they help kids disagree clearly and respectfully, that that alone has an outsized independent effect, positive effect on civic engagement as an adult. And for this reason, the open classroom climate is something that most democracies study routinely. Um, there's several survey, through a survey that's administered across most democracies. Well, we haven't participated in that in a long time. But that is another thing that policymakers can pay attention to. Now, when we our, our team designed uh, School Culture 360, which mm -hmm. we, we released this year, and we included questions about the open classroom climate. And you know, to our knowledge, it's the first real panel that looks at that in this country in a long time. But it, there are a lot of reasons why teachers don't feel free to do that. There are a lot of barriers to them doing that, but they need encouragement from their leaders and they need help and training. We have a number of uh, education school deans and philanthropists who listen to our show. So take this as a as a nod uh, to see what we can do to support our teachers in the classroom. And as I hear you talk about civics, I also think about the role of social entrepreneurship. And you take um, uh, Justice Sotomayor 
and former Supreme Court justice uh, from, uh, from Arizona. And they've come together and decided to put together a uh, iCivics app to show not only a bipartisan approach to it, but also a, a need to use technology to talk more about civics and have a Republican appointee and a Democratic appointee uh, do this, I think is important. And we're talking about uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. So I was encouraged to hear that, but you've got my juices thinking about how that and your work could better work in the classroom. Well, iCivics is a great tool. And it this, this notion of having bipartisanship is exactly what we need to be talking about now. And it's almost a lost capacity to to have meaningful political compromise. But I look for the day, and if we start working on this now, maybe the next generation will do a better job of civil, civil disagreement and bipartisanship. Here, here. What a concept, civil disagreement. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, we are nearing the end of our time here, but I can't let you go without asking a little bit more of a personal question, which is while we are all quarantined like this, what is it that you are reading right now, whether it's for work or pleasure or both? What's what's on your radar? Oh, my goodness. I have a long list of books to read, but I have to admit that at night when I'm winding down, I just want to read mystery novels or, you know, books by great psychologists. So um, I, I, I just, what did I just, oh, I just finished rereading a book that I read a long time ago by John Powell called Fully Human, Fully Alive. And it's the book I read when I first started going to therapy as a 20-year-old. <laughs> and it scared and inspired me. And I just reread it. And it, I realized why it scared and inspired me, because it's all about being responsive and flexible, which is not something I come by naturally. Well, it sounds like it could be a good read for a lot of us in this time. I don't, I don't myself come by flexibility naturally either. Type, Ashley, a, type a people need that reminder. Yeah, <laughs> continuously. <laughs> Ashley, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. It's just a pleasure to hear your voice. We um, hope to have you back and um, hope that you stay safe and healthy. And we will be on the lookout for your next report. Well, thank you. <laughs> it's a pleasure to talk to you all. Take care. Take care. And we're back. This time I've got the tweet of the week because it's a little bit local. It is from the Mystic Valley Regional Charter School, uh, one of the all constantly cited as one of the top performing schools, in fact, in the whole country and relevant to today's discussion because it is, in fact, a an Edie Hirsch core knowledge school. And this tweet from Mystic Valley Regional Charter says, although Patriots Day 2020 will be different given uncertain times, no marathon or morning baseball game, the importance and significance of the day remains as strong as ever. Now, for those of you who are fortunate to 
reside in sunnier places than Massachusetts. Patriots Day, it's really, it's a New England holiday, but most notably celebrated in the Massachusetts and and the Boston area, um, uh, Maine too. But it's an annual event. It's the day that that we run the Boston Marathon. Well, we, like I've ever run it, right? But that the Boston Marathon is run and many of us spectate. Um, and, And it's here to commemorate the battles of Lexington and Concord, the very first battles of the American Revolutionary War. So it was a little different yesterday. I know in my house, um, in honor of Patriots Day, our community had a community together day. And so my kids uh, made some signs um, thanking our neighbors for for staying inside and thinking of others and, and offering help to those who needed like grocery pickup. My kids wanted to bake cookies, Gerard. I told them uh, most people would not be very accepting of those cookies in this moment. Um, but anyway, have you ever, Gerard, have you ever been in town when Patriots Day is being celebrated? Never. Oh, well, you got to make it sometime. I mean, just watching the runners, especially if you're drinking like a cold beer is a, is a really good way to go. That's how, that's how most Bostonians like to, like to handle it, myself included. Um, so it's been great to be with you all this week. Next week, we're going we're gonna to mix it up a little bit. I'm pretty excited about this. So we've talked a little bit about pandemic. Um, but next week, we've got John M. Barry. He's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History. He's also an adjunct faculty member at Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. So I think that's going to be a really interesting conversation, Gerard. And I'm going to be eager to hear your voice again then so until then um you know get out your umbrella uh stay stay warm (laughs) 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 i will hear your voice next week take care direct take care